and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. The Commonwealth is a club of 54 countries that mostly used to be part of the British Empire. Those historic links with the United Kingdom mean that citizens of Commonwealth countries are eligible to join Her Majesty's Armed Forces, where other foreigners are not. Around 6% of the armed forces were born in Commonwealth countries, and the army in particular continues to recruit around 1,000 soldiers a year from countries like Fiji, Ghana and South Africa. Although these overseas recruits are permitted to take a bullet in the service of the Crown, not all of them are permitted to stay in the UK once their service is over. And it's those immigration issues for Commonwealth soldiers that we're discussing on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be joined by a lawyer with extensive experience in those very immigration issues, Vanessa Templeton of Duncan Lewis Solicitors. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Connor. Thanks for coming on. So what I'd like to do is, first of all, go through the basic immigration rules for Commonwealth soldiers uh, before going on to discuss the problems that this group faces and that you're helping them with. And the starting point really is that people from Commonwealth countries can join the armed forces without British citizenship, right? They just need to be citizens of a Commonwealth country and they're not given a British passport when they join up or anything like that. Oh, they, they, when they join up, they, they do get exempt, um, exempt from immigration control status for the duration that they serve. Okay. And, and their families, did they get exemption from immigration control as well? No, no, not, not their families. Their families are not exempt. So they would need to apply to join the service personnel under the immigration rules for armed forces. Okay. And you said that the soldiers themselves are exempt for the duration of their service. And what happens when they leave the armed forces? Do they stay exempt or, or what happens then? Well, no, they do not stay exempt. I mean, the, the, the exemption is for the duration of their service. So they cease to be exempt um, from the date of discharge. Um, the service personnel really should have been, should be told um, and made aware of steps they need to take in order to be able to stay in the UK. There are um, provisions in in the immigration rules that would enable them to remain. If they have served a minimum of four years in the armed forces, they would be eligible to apply for indefinite leave to remain. The, the armed forces have policies, internal policies that they should be following, um, which includes them advising the service personnel of what needs to be done and actually facilitating that process, which includes... Um, taking their passport, uh, cancelling the exemption stamp, informing the Home Office that of the date of discharge, uh, which then would trigger the grant of a 28-day period within which the service personnel would need to put an application in, a paid application in for ILR, and that paid application being um, a fee of £2,389. Okay, and that's, I guess, the position on paper. But as listeners may have guessed, we wouldn't be talking about this issue if that process was followed properly. And there are several different issues, I think, that Commonwealth soldiers have with the immigration system. The first being family members who are trying to join Commonwealth soldiers during their service. Because as you said, they aren't exempt from immigration control. So can you tell me sort of about the barriers that family members face? With family members, they are subject to much the same immigration rules as any other family members coming to the United Kingdom. Um, So they are subject to the minimum income requirements. Uh, So 
a spouse would have to show that the service personnel is earning £18,600 in order to join the spouse in the UK. And again, you know, the, the sort of the additional sums that need to be paid for each child um, is the same as any other foreign migrant coming to the UK. A lot of recruits into the army, most of them wouldn't be earning anywhere near that sum. So yeah, I mean, if you join up as a private soldier or whatever the terminology is at the the lowest rank, what kind of salary would you be expecting? At the current rate, as I understand it, recruits in, in initial training would be under £16,000. So I think the figure is £15,985 actually. Um, and for a private, um, they would earn £20,400. Uh, a lance corporal earns £27,000, £27,326. So you can see how that, that you know, those earnings um, do present a real issue for anybody who has a family and wants their family to join them. So if, you know, a, an individual with two children or three children um, would need to be a lance corporal, really, to, to be able to afford to bring... Um, wife and children to join them. Okay, and that's the first of the three issues I wanted to talk about that's a, that affects soldiers during their service. The second issue we've touched on slightly already, and it's the point at which ex-servicemen from Commonwealth countries try to exercise this right to indefinitely to remain, and you outlined the process earlier. But you also mentioned the cost of over two grand, which is seems, given the salaries you've just mentioned, probably not affordable for your typical uh, service personnel. It's not easily affordable, but with knowledge and sufficient notice of the cost, then possibly. But the issue that we have faced, um, certainly historically, has been that there hasn't been information that has been cascaded to the service personnel of the of the need to make these applications. So, you know, it, it is very much a case of they're about to be discharged. Either they leave the army not knowing that they need to make an application to remain in the United Kingdom, or they find out at very, sh- at very short notice that they need to make an application and simply cannot afford to make the application, and then they are left in the lurch. You know, what, what is very commonly assumed within the army, and this is something which even the, the welfare officers can't, they don't seem to understand, it's, it's almost an anecdotal, um, a, common, a common understanding that after four years you get to leave, you have leave to remain in the United, United Kingdom or you have the right to remain. The steps that one needs to take in order to have the right to remain isn't made known. So People entering the army assume that if they have served for a minimum of four years, they will be in the UK and um, have the right to remain there definitely, even after they earn the discharge. Just uh, automatically, almost automatically, and this is because because the information hasn't been cascaded. It's something that that is a common it, it is, it's a common knowledge. It, 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 it tends to be a common knowledge within the armed forces, and everybody thinks that, including the welfare officers who should know better. Um, and, you know, the, and when, when somebody isn't in the know, they speak about British citizenship and um, indefinite leave to remain interchangeably. So these are technical issues which 
um, translates into complete misinformation or lack of information, most of the foreign servicemen assume that they will have the right to continue to remain on the basis of the exemption stamp that says this person is exempt from immigration control. So they leave the army and they have been able, they, they were able to find jobs um, and work for years on the basis of this exemption stamp, only to find that as the environment became increasingly hostile um, and employers start to ask for proof of the right to work, that is how many of these individuals find out belatedly in most cases, years after they've left the army, that they don't actually have legal status. Because that exemption stamp is no longer valid after they are discharged? That's right. And and, and, that, and those exemption stamps have actually been uh, enabled them to, to work for some years after they left the army. And it's only been since, 2000, uh, since late 2012 up to 2014, where things started to become a lot tighter and employers had the responsibility to check that their their foreign employees had the right um, to work in the UK, um, that a lot of people in this situation became aware that they didn't have legal status, by which point either they lose their jobs or and and then are in a situation where they can't afford um, to make an application or they're just too scared to make an application. Because, you know, they've got children here, they've got family here, and the prospect of making an application that's refused because they've been, you know, here illegally, just some of them will just try to remain here as for as long as possible. God, yeah, it's a really brutal situation. Um, but thank you for that. That's a very clear explanation of those uh, other two issues onto the cover, the cost and that lack of information. And you, as a lawyer, are not taking these issues lying down and you have taken the government to court on behalf of eight clients what i mean tell, tell me about the case you know what are your arguments what are you trying to achieve for these clients well we have eight claimants um incidentally they're all they're all fijians um the background to that is that the fijians apart from aside from the gurkhas form the largest contingent within the armed forces which is why the issue is so prevalent amongst Fijian. Um, nationals serving in the army. All of my clients served between seven to 12 years in the army and were discharged without having been, they they weren't aware of their immigration obligations. And we've been able to establish this um, from FOI requests from the home office. So the, the procedures that the you know, what, what needs to be understood actually is what the internal procedures are within the MOD, what the MOD actually is um, by policy, their own policy required to do. And they are required to inform the Home Office that these servicemen of the date of discharge and they need to take steps for um, these individuals. So it's, it's a very um, detailed process and and it's very sort of step by step. You inform them, you, you cancel the, 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 the exemption stamp is supposed to be cancelled. The Home Office is supposed to be informed and the 28 day period is supposed to then be formally granted. In all of our clients cases, but for one of our clients, we have shown that that process did not take place, which is evidence that the MOD did not follow their processes and failed to inform um, these individuals off their immigration obligations. So that's that's set in stone. We have that um, fact established. Um, since March 2014, um, 
the MOD are taking steps to actively <laughs> inform um, service personnel of their immigration um, obligations. But in circumstances where, you know, in pre-2014 discharge cases, where it can be shown that um, it can be proven that they did not take those steps, then that service personnel, despite the fact that they've been in the UK, UK without leave to remain, um, will by discretion be granted ILR. It's something to that effect. So it's actually set in stone in, in Home Office policy. Um, we asked the MOD to agree to waive fees so that these individuals could um, could submit ILI applications on the basis that you know we've established that they were not properly advised. Uh, the response was uh, they, they declined and said, well, they, they can make an application and seek a fee waiver. Well, we know that the CFV waivers are not are not are not available for ILR applications. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so what you're saying, what they were saying to us is, you know, submit a lesser application, seek a fee waiver for that, and then we'll see what happens. Which, which really is 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 an irrational position really to be in, and um, it's on this basis that we we've lodged this this JR and we represent this the eight claimants. Okay, so so in their situation, there is now a discretionary policy that can help them, but because of the cost involved, they're sort of shut out from availing of that. Yeah, yeah. so it could stump up £2,389 times however many family members needs to also regularise mm-hmm. to be, then chances are, actually... They, by 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 guidance, they they would have to be granted IR or they should be granted IR. And you have a in a few days' time. By the time this podcast goes out on the first of December, you have a hearing in this case uh, to try to persuade the High Court to let it proceed to the next stage. What do you think your prospects are? If I, I don't know if it's appropriate to speculate so close to the case, but do you have a sense of, you know, what, is this a, a long shot or a sure thing or something in between? Well, we believe we have a strong case. So we, we, we would not be, we would not have come this far if we didn't think that. And in fact, our evidence is substantial, Connor. It's um, set against actually almost no evidence from the MOD very little evidence from the MOD. I think the issues that we have to deal with are technical legal points, um, such as the issue of limitation. The MOD will has argued that, you know, they should have made it three months since the date of the breach. Well, that's just <laughs> irrational when they didn't, they weren't aware three months from the date of the breach um, that they were in a situation. If we don't get permission on the 1st of December, it would be on legal technical issues. It wouldn't be on the basis of the substantive merits of the case. So if this case didn't succeed and, and touch wood that it does, but is there a sort of campaigning, lobbying, political solution perhaps that you hope might kick in to, to resolve your uh, client situation? It has triggered, um, it has necessitated really um, a lot of discussion um, behind closed doors, I think, between MPs. You know, the public opinion is strongly in our favour, which has triggered MPs speaking out on the issues. And we know that, you know, they they are having, giving indications that there are are going to be um, something happening. I think, personally, I feel, you know, that 
I suppose that they, they would like to present what they have to present on a silver platter rather than it being as a, as a result of a defeat of a court case. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you the, know, the, that, the that's obviously what they want to do. But I guess, you know, that 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 silver platter offering ne- would never have come about, about if, unless they were pushed. Just taking a step back from the individual cases that you're dealing with and just thinking again about the policies, because you mentioned that there was a shift in around 2014 and the Home Office guidance and processes are much clearer now. So do you think these kind of cases that you're dealing with are historic mostly, that they represent the situation in the past and things have now greatly improved? Or are there still people who are being discharged today and aren't getting the proper advice and they're being, I suppose, blocked out by the the fees, even if they get the advice? Well, the situation of the fees is still an ongoing issue. That's a current issue that's faced by all service personnel. And it's something which the Armed Forces Families, um, Armed Families Federation is also campaigning very strongly about. So in terms of the fee issue, it's a very current issue. I I understand from caseworkers who work within these charities that there are still issues of lack of understanding. But as lawyers trying to establish that, that would be difficult because since March 2014, the MOD is, um, what they have done is... um, assigned these um, projects to charities to start up, you know, things like schemes and have briefing talk, talks and all, all of that, you know, um, all of these initiatives to, to cascade information. So they've kind of farmed it out. So I think post-2014, it would be difficult to establish that, you know, the, that, they, that the armed and the service personnel did, were, was not informed or could not have known because the information is is quite widely cascaded now. However, prior to 2014, it is a fact that there, there, was, there was no such um, routine cascading of information. The resettlement processes severely lacked anything that was specifically um, targeted or focused on foreign Commonwealth um, veteran personnel those those who were being discharged, you know, there, there are mandatory sessions, briefing sessions about pensions, about housing, about benefits, about employment, but there will be, they, they will not be able to, the MOD would not be able to, to show that there was even one briefing about immigration responsibilities. So, yeah, it is a historical issue, but it's a historical issue that still impacts on many, many individuals who are just not in a position to rectify their, their, their situation. Absolutely. Well, we shall await the outcome of your case and the lobbying and campaigning work that's going on around this and uh, hope for a better situation for Commonwealth soldiers in future. We will leave it there. Uh, Vanita Templeton from Duncan Lewis Solicitors. This has been a podcast from Free Movement, a website publishing updates, commentary, training and advice on UK immigration and asylum law. Visit us at www.freemovement.org.uk where you can sign up for